Good morning. This morning's scripture passage comes from Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Glad you're here today. Take your Bibles and turn to that text, if you would, Ephesians 4, and uh, we'll be looking at uh, verses 25 to 31 today, particularly uh, verse 29 will be um, our focal text today. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your presence now and that you would use your word to do what it does best, to pierce through the heart, help us to know ourselves and to untangle all of the things that the world, the flesh, and the devil would want us to believe. We're here today to reorient our lives in accordance with the truth. And so we pray that that would happen, that you'd be glorified, and that we would learn and grow through the authority of your word and under the umbrella of the Lordship of Christ. So help us to heed, to listen to your call. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this Sunday marks the conclusion of our uh, five-week series on the tongue, and it's been quite a journey to uh, find out what the Bible says about how we talk and also to see how it intersects with both the gospel and um, also the notion of how we're able to glorify God with our mouths. As Nate mentioned, uh, the next couple of weeks are really important for us as a church family. I just want to highlight a little bit further detail on what's happening over the next uh, couple of weeks. Because honestly, um, what we're about to do in the next number of weeks, you don't do very often as a church. And in fact, for many of us, uh, this will be the one time in your lifetime that you'll move into uh, a new sanctuary. And it's just really an exciting moment. So September 11th, um, next Sunday, we're going to uh, celebrate uh, the closing of this sanctuary. And I don't know about you, but I have some mixed feelings about that. And the reason is you, like me, if you've been here for a little while, have experienced God uh, in this very room. And whether you've been here for for just a couple years, or whether you've been here, you know, since the crust of the earth was cooling, you, you, you experienced God in the midst of His people here in this room, and so therefore we're going to just honor the Lord and say, God, thank you, thank you for showing up at this point and what you did here in my life, and just just thinking through the the beautiful way that God has used this space. Some of you f- helped fund this space, and and thank you for for making that possible. And then uh, the next week, September 18th, we move into uh, our new space, the new sanctuary, and I just want to encourage you. It's just going to be 
a, a relatively normal Sunday here at College Park Church. There's not going to be balloons dropping from the ceiling or uh, you know things like like that. But uh, all we're going to do is what we do every Sunday, and that is just uh, have a great time of celebration and exalt the name of Jesus. That's what we're going to do. Uh, same church, just a different uh, venue, and it's just going to be a wonderful day to celebrate God's provision. And just this new chapter that he is ushering us into. And then um, on the evening of September the 18th, we'll be having a, a dedication service where we're going to take our monthly Fresh Encounter service, uh, our prayer time when we pray together as a community. And we're going to pray over every square inch of uh, that uh, facility. And uh, so we want you to be a part of that and to join us as we pray and just dedicate that facility uh, to God's glory. Thinking about the fact that it wasn't that long ago that we were gathered on that very spot for the groundbreaking and did the exact same thing and number of um, months ago. And then uh, the next Sunday, September the 25th, will be a very specific challenge for us to experience community and to embrace our calling. In other words, for you to realize that this is your church. Uh, it's more than a building. It's more than a structure. It really is all about the people that God uh, puts inside of his church. And he's given each of you a specific calling and an opportunity to use that calling for, for God's kingdom and to advance his purposes. In some cases, that'll be outside of the, this church ministry. But in many cases, this is the place where God wants you to use your gift. And so an invitation for you to see the value and the benefit of using that God-given gift that he has entrusted to you. And then, um, the, and then we launch into missions emphasis month, which is just, I think, a great way to segue into a, a new season of church ministry, being reminded that it's not just all about us and our needs and the facility to help us and our kids, but it really is about how we are able to attempt to reach the world for the glory and the fame of Christ. So uh, you, you've probably heard or said, and I've heard it many times already, having teenagers, that you know, be sure that you savor these moments because they go by so fast. Your kids grow up so quickly. And I, and I would tell you that from a church ministry standpoint, this is one of those moments that you want to savor. Um, this moment of moving into a new facility is really important. It's really special. And frankly, it's really rare. I run into a lot of really depressed pastors uh, these days who are struggling, uh, church ministries that um, are uh, not filled with life and life change. And it's, it's just a blessing to be part of this moment in College Park's history. And so I just want you to savor the next couple weeks together as we make our way through this. So today we're wrapping up. This is the fifth and final message in this series called, Oh, Be Careful, Little Mouth. And today, as you can tell by the smiley face, is going to be a little more positive. All right. So, so today is about building others up. And let me just review where we've been. So week one, we saw the importance of the tongue from the book of James and we, we learned that God has some really important things to tell us about our tongue, the fact that it's full of deadly poison and can be used for all kinds of evil. It's a little organ, but can produce a lot of damage. And so we tried to raise the importance of this issue and then launched into this live 11 um, video conference that we've been doing in homes to try and drive the truth of God's word deeper into your lives and specifically into your small groups. So for some of you, the takeaway from the Live 11 thing is, man, getting involved with people and talking about life's issues is really helpful. And your next step is to find a way to get into a small group long term or get involved in a big group to find a place to connect and more than just coming on Sunday morning, just having that be your steady diet. So week one was about elevating the importance of the tongue. Week two was about learning how we talk to or about other people, and we learned that we're to use words that are spiritually helpful and not hurtful. Then week three was this idea of how to 
talk arrogantly, and that simply is the absence of God in our communication, that you say, oh, we're going to go to this city and this city and this city and buy and sell and trade, and, and you, but you don't say if the Lord wills, and that means more than just adding if the Lord wills to everything that you say. It means this attitude of respect and awe for the fact that life hangs by a thin thread controlled by God's providence, and God is in all of the details of life. And so talking arrogantly can simply be talking without God as a part of the conditions of our future and our plans. And then last week we saw the importance of balancing grace and truth and just this important paradox that we have to wrestle with for our entire lives of balancing out these two critical areas. Now, today we're going to look at the issue of what it means to build others up. And then in your Live 11, the last video that you'll see is on affirmation. And so we'll take one piece of it in the video series and dial deep into what it means to affirm. Today I just want to introduce this subject of building others up and also very specifically call you to be involved in the lives of other people in a way that takes the word and applies it in crisis moments. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Essentially, um, the question that we're dealing with is this. The words that come out of your mouth, are they words that give life or are they words, are they words that bring death? Now, the text that we're examining specifically is Ephesians 4, verse 29. And this is the third time that we've used Ephesians 4, uh, verses 25 to 32, as the basis of our um, uh, Sunday morning sermon. In week two, we use the, the, the phrase in verse 29, let no corrupting word come out of your mouth. That's how we were to talk to other people as, in a way that's helpful. Corrupting, of course, meant something that's spoiled or rotten. And then last week we also saw this phrase um, that it may give grace to those who hear as a part of the notion of this grace and truth paradox. Well, this morning I want to look at another part of this particular verse. Look at verse 29. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. That's our phrase that we need today. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, the Greek word for building up is a word or a phrase that um, can refer to any manner of construction. In some cases, it actually refers to a constructed building, like in Mark 13, when the disciples pointed Jesus to look at the beauty of Jerusalem. And when they referred to the buildings, they used the same word that's used here for build up. It can also refer to a spiritualized building, like the building of the body of Christ, how you construct the the people in terms of their spiritual growth. And it also can identify the action of building in a spiritual sense, not just building the body of Christ, but the building of one's own soul, if you will, or the building of one's spiritual life. In this respect, the building is very much linked to spiritual growth, being formed into Christ-likeness, and growing into Christian maturity. So as you're building up, you're growing up, you're becoming more and more mature. The word is used throughout the New Testament in a a variety of contexts, but primarily it means this idea of helping one another to grow up spiritually. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11. Paul says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
or listen to Romans 14, 19. This is the text that's set in the middle of uh, a controversy between two different uh, groups of people who aren't getting along over matters of preference. One group thinks one thing, another thinks another, and Paul says this, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, the things that we are to pursue are the things that help other people grow. And then 1 Corinthians 14.12, he says this, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So there's this notion that there's this building up process that's happening and going on, this spiritual growth that is taking place that Paul wants to be able to see. But probably the most important and significant text is Ephesians 4, verse 11, that as a cross-reference. So take your Bible or look in the notes as I read along and just notice how important this text is in terms of what it says about the body of Christ being built up. Verse 11, it says, And he gave, this is Ephesians 4, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let me just pause there. So what he's saying, or Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, verse 11, is that God gives people as gifts to the church. And those people are responsible to help equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, doing the work of the ministry is not just the job of people like pastors, apostles, preachers, and teachers. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, that's our job. The work of the ministry is the entire body's job. That that you're as responsible to do the work of the ministry as I am responsible to do the work of the ministry. That it's not just the work of the elders to do the work, but it's our opportunity to be able to work together. And the end game is, he says, for the building up of the body of Christ. So so that's what the process is. So people are given to the church, you grow in Christ-likeness, and the body is built up. And then notice what happens in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So again, here's the goal. The goal is Christ-likeness. He gives us people. We grow together to find out what the work of the ministry is. We grow up and we're built up such that as we grow, the end game is for us to look like Jesus, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, verse 15, here's how communication fits, how we talk. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a beautiful text. It helps us to understand that God gives people to the church to help it to grow. And, and you can think of this in your own life. No doubt that there have been people that God has placed in your life. And it wasn't just what they said, but it was what they said and how they lived. And when the message and the man combine, or the message and the woman combine, there's a beautiful combination of both message and life. And when those two things combine, a person is built up into maturity to understand what Christ is. And then in doing so, speaking the truth in love to one another, the body becomes this beautiful Christ-centered thing that is marvelous 
marvelously resemblant of what God wants the church to become and be in the world. I will tell you, when this text works and the church catches that vision, there is nothing more glorious in all the world than being part of the body of Christ. To see people who love one another, who love the truth, who want to grow in Christ's likeness, and they do this thing together, and they serve, and they grow, and they, 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 they minister together. It's a beautiful, glorious thing. And what Paul's vision here is of encouragement and edification and spiritual helpfulness that are all a part of what it means to, to build up the church and for us to help build each other up. So when I read the New Testament... This theme of building up the body of Christ is the charge, not just of pastors. It's the charge of every believer. Oh, sure, it's the charge of every pastor and every church, but it's the charge of every believer. That means that the reason that you're here today is not just so you can receive something and to be fed. Well, that's a reason that you're here. But one reason that you are also here is so that you can help pour your life into someone else. That means that when you come to College Park Church, your aim should not be just to listen and to learn and to leave, but instead to find out how has God called you and gifted you and where does he want to use you. There are people who are in this building today who are deeply hurting. And God wants you to come with an eyesight to look around and see who's the person on the margin, who's the person on the fringe, who's the person that's hurting, who's the person that I need to ask, no, how are you really doing? That this work of the ministry of mutual edification and mutual encouragement is something that God calls all of us to be a part of. Folks, this is really important. And the reason is, especially as we move into a new building, is that true growth is not numbers alone. Rather, it's growing up into Christ-likeness. And one of the things that our pastors and elders are constantly asking ourselves is not just how many people are here, but also asking how are they growing in terms of their depth of their relationship with Jesus. Our goal is that people would grow into the likeness of who and what Jesus is, and everything that we do serves that purpose. Now, as it relates to how we talk, Ephesians 4 helps us by identifying that your words are meant to bring spiritual life and not spiritual death. Your words are meant to give life to people, not death. In other words, are you the kind of person that when someone ends a conversation with you, they feel encouraged spiritually, or do they feel like, man, I've had a huge withdrawal taken out of my life? Are you the kind of person that when when folks are around you, they feel like, wow, I've been able to grow closer to Jesus? Or you're thanking Jesus that the conversation was done as they walk away. You see, every person in how they talk have a trajectory with their words. Paul Tripp says this, I would summarize it this way, words give life, words bring death, you choose. What does this mean? It means... You have never spoken a neutral word in your life. Your words have direction to them. If your words are moving in the life direction, they will be words of encouragement, hope, love, peace, unity, instruction, wisdom, and correction. And you know what? When that happens, it is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Don't you love being part of a small group or a big group or a church community or some sort of group of people when you feel like there is love and hope and peace and unity? You, you drive home and you're like, oh, that was so awesome. Feels feel so uplifted. But the reality is because there's people who are sinful, all of us are, we all have issues, it's not always that way. In fact, Tripp says this, If your words are moving in a death direction, they will be words of anger and malice, slander, jealousy, gossip, division, contempt, racism, violence, judgment, and condemnation. Your words have direction to them. 
See, the reality is all of us have words. We all talk. Some of us too much. (laughs) But the issue is what kind of words and what kind of role do our words really play in the spiritual life of other people? Are you the kind of person that by how you talk and the way that you talk and even the things that you talk about that you give spiritual life to people? Or are you just content to hang out with your friends? You see, hanging out with friends who are Christians doesn't mean that that's necessarily a Christian gathering. It could be you just hang out and enjoyed having pizza. But there could be just a little bit of a moment where it turns and now it's become a spiritualized moment. A moment that is helpful in terms of one's spiritual growth and their progress. And there's really two kinds of people in life. The kind of people who give life and the kind of people who really diminish life. People whose spiritual life um, is able to impact others by virtue of what they say and others who by virtue of words of death seem to squelch spiritual life. Let me give you an example. So you've probably all um, had a fire before that you couldn't get started. And, and a fire, in order for it to be to start, requires both fuel, like wood or gasoline, and then also oxygen. And if you've ever tried to build a fire, you know that in order to get that fire going, well-placed oxygen or a blowing of, of air on little embers creates greater fire and greater capacity. Well, it, this is called a bellow. And what this does is this specifically directs a puff of air. This is actually one that's used by one of our staff members, thus the uh, the ashes there on the tip. And uh, you, you use this and you push it down and a puff of air is directed at a very specific spot in that fire. And the more oxygen that's driven towards those coals and embers, the, the, the more likely it is that it will heat, it will um, start to burn more brightly, and, and the fire will take place at a greater capacity because of a well-placed puff of air air. And you know what? The reality is there are believers who are a lot like bellows. Let's call them bellow fellows, shall we? And uh, they're they're folks, and you know what they're like, right? Just at the right moment, they just, they they blow fresh oxygen into a moment, and and people's spiritual lives are increased. The capacity to love Jesus goes higher and higher and higher, and they just can, in a strategic way, at a right moment, just poof, with a beautiful word at a right moment, and people's lives are encouraged. Don't you love being around bellow fellows? They, they, They give life and energy but in contrast to that unfortunately the church isn't filled with bellow fellows it's also filled with people who represent this which is a fire extinguisher and inside here is a a component called ammonium phosphate and what this does is in the midst of a fire that needs both oxygen and fuel spraying a, a fire extinguisher suffocates the fire by depriving it of oxygen and i can't tell you how many fire extinguisher christians i've met in my lifetime something's going great in church, everyone's excited, and they're like, well, I don't know if it's all... Right? And they're, they're sucking the life out of it. So it's like, oh, that music was awesome, wasn't it? I just met the Lord, met the Lord. Oh, I don't know. And they're just... And they're a small group, people are sharing. Well, the Lord did this in my life, and then the person opens their mouth, and it's like just, you know, what is it called? It's uh, ammonium phosphate, just comes right out of their mouth. And it's like someone sucks the spiritual oxygen right out of the room. You know what I'm talking about? If you're like, our small group doesn't have anybody like that, it's you. That's the problem. Okay? Said that before. But seriously, it is. Look around. Ask ask your wife, am I like that? Tell him. Tell him. Yes, you suck the air right out of the room when you say things like that. So let's just, can we just agree that the church doesn't need any more fire extinguisher Christians? 
Can we just agree to that? That, that? that we want to have the kind of hearts and lives that increase people's spiritual capacity, not diminish it? The kind of lives that, that really reflect the beauty of what God wants to do and making us more and more like Jesus? Some, some of you have not added spiritual life to anybody's life in a long time. And the fact of the matter is, you're weary and worn out because you're so either negative or you suck the life out of, of people that are around you. And it's time just to say, you know what? We have enough people like this. We need some folks who can really pour life, energy, and heart into what it means to be built up in the likeness of Christ. So let me put some handles on this for you. What is, what's the difference between words of life and words of death? Here's some examples. Words of life are words that are Christ and other focused. Words of death are self-focused. I mean, it's as simple as that. Do you talk about Jesus and others or do you talk about yourself? Words of life attack problems, not people. Words of death attack people and problems. Words of life assume the best. Words of death assume the worst. Words of life are spoken after fully understanding what's going on. Words of death are spoken to be heard and to be listened to. Words of life are active and engaged. Words of death are passive and distant. Words of life are solution-oriented. Words of death are revenge-oriented. Words of life are heart and behavior-focused. But words of death are just behavior-only focused. Words of life leave people refreshed and encouraged. Words of death leave people exhausted and discouraged. Words of life rely on God's word. Words of death rely on your opinions. Words of life are patient, they're long-suffering. Words of death are impatient and hasty words. Words of life are honest and loving. Words of death are deceitful and callous. Words of life make Jesus attractive, while words of death create a barrier to Jesus. So, listen friends, we live in a death-filled culture when it comes to words. For that matter, our natural bent is toward death words. And so everything about our environment and everything about who we are naturally is bent towards this words of death arena. And yet God has placed us in the world for those who know Christ to be vehicles of life-giving grace. Listen to Colossians 4.6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And then 2 Corinthians 5 or 2 Corinthians 2:15 and 16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, meaning that there is a flavor, an aroma about you, a, a sense of both what you love and who you are. And at the at the at the ground of this or at the foundation of this is a is a basic premise and it's this That in the midst of a sinful world in which we live with problems in terms of who we are, our our rebellion against God, that God in his infinite mercy has made a way for people to be made right with him. And this is called God's grace, grace that you've probably sung about. This grace means that God can take wretched, awful sinners who've made a mess of their lives, and if they don't change who fundamentally they are, God sends them to, to hell. In punishment for their sins. And the beauty of what the gospel is and what the message of the Bible is all about is that God comes and rescues people from who they are. He changes them from the inside out. And this righteous change of who they are creates within them now this unbelievable perspective of life and God and ministry such that it changes everything about them, especially how they talk. In other words, 
People who've experienced the radical grace of God and who know what it means to have been given life use words that give life. People who understand the beauty of God's grace are gracious in how they talk. So words give life, words bring death. It's a matter of which side of the ledger that we're on. Now the question then is, how do we, how do we build people up? How do we do this in a way that fits with what the Bible calls us to do? And today I want to show you two paths of this building. So if, if you, if you say, I want to go down the path that gives life, assuming that you've got a relationship with Jesus and you understand what it means for Him to be your Savior and Lord, you head down this path of giving life. In terms of your words, what does this look like? Well, the first is this. It means that there is this desire to consistently build up by virtue of encouragement. The tone of Ephesians 4 and a number of other passages shows us that the typical pattern and the typical product of a person's life who has experienced the beauty of God's grace is that they understand that this grace that God has given them causes them to see other people and to talk in a way that fits with everything that God has done for them. They have a desire to advance God's kingdom and His purposes through their life and in and through the lives of other people. They love what God is doing in them. They love to see what God is doing in the world. And therefore, they want to be a part of building people up and helping them to become like their Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 Um, 29 to 32, gives us four characteristics of what building others up looks like. The first one is found in um, in verse 30. After saying, but only as such is good for building up, as fits the occasions, that it may give grace to those who hear, verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the first thing is this, words that encourage, words that help build people up, Paul begins by helping us see here that our words that do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now these are, these are, it's a broad category of, uh, of, of what these words are, are not like. The Holy Spirit, of course, is God's agent in the world, to accomplish both the Father's will and to do it through the ministry of the Son. The Holy Spirit is a person, and He has a very specific mission. His mission is to be the presence of Christ in the world in His absence. And Paul is telling us here that there are some words that make the Holy Spirit, as a person and as a third member of the Trinity, sad and discouraged. That the Holy Spirit, as the indwelling presence of Christ, is grieved when our words work against God's purposes. He knows what God's glory is like. He knows what Christ has done. He indwells the person who's received Christ as their Savior. And when words come out that are not fitting, that don't fit with God's purposes and His plan, He is grieved and saddened. And then Paul adds this even further. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Amazing that Paul adds this here. He links, again, this notion of who the Holy Spirit is and how we talk to this idea of being sealed for the day of redemption. He points to the the lens, if you will, through which Paul sees everything, which is God's grace in his forgiveness. So what he's saying here is that the normal, consistent way that the followers of Jesus live is by seeing everything through this lens of what has been done for them through redemption. Therefore, of all the people on planet Earth, 
the disciples of Jesus should be unique in our other-centered motivation and in our other-centered words. Why? Because we have been the recipients of unbelievable grace. It's one of the reasons that if you don't know Jesus, what I'm talking about here, it it really, frankly, doesn't even apply to you. you. You can't really do anything good. You can't really do anything that's gracious, because at the end of the day, you've not really tasted and seen of the beauty and the experience of all that God is for you in Christ. In fact, you don't really even know what true joy is. You may be happy, but you don't know what real joy is until you've experienced the power of God's ultimate forgiveness. A few weeks ago, I was speaking at a family camp for Life Action Ministries, and I was preaching through the book of Colossians. And during the series, I spent most of one sermon explaining the beauty of justification. Meaning, what it means that God in Christ has forgiven you of all of your sins, and then, taking it another step further, that justification also means that you have been declared completely righteous. So the reason that that grace is amazing, as John Newton said, is because God takes all of our sins and he wipes them away by the payment that Jesus makes on the cross, And then even further and more miraculously takes Jesus' righteousness and he gives it to those who once were his enemies. This is called justification. Such that you stand before God not only completely forgiven, but you also stand before him completely righteous. Now, there was a man in the audience who, although he had gone to church most of his life, had never heard that you were not only forgiven, but you were also declared righteous. And in our testimony time, he was reflecting on how unbelievable it was that God had done this for him. That he not only forgave him, but he also declared him righteous. And with tear-filled eyes, he was just sharing how unbelievable it was that God has loved him this way and granted him this level of righteousness. On the way home, I was sharing this testimony with my, my children. And one of my sons said from the back of the car, He didn't know what justification was? <laughs> as only a pastor's son could say. (laughs) But then he said this, Oh my word, he must be so happy now that he knows. Exactly. Because justification, this notion that you are completely forgiven and made totally righteous, changes the joy that comes through your heart and soul. And friends, therefore, should change how you talk. Understanding and experiencing the beauty of God's grace needs to be as practical as to how you talk to people. And the way that you talk to them. So words that do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the Bible tells us that we are to use words that are kind. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then verse 32, be kind to one another. What does this mean? It means that which is useful, serving a particular purpose, that which is helpful, that which is pleasant. In other words, these kind words are words that fit with how God has treated you. These are encouraging, life-giving words. The whole orientation of your life is different. You're a kind man because God has dealt with you kindly. You're a kind woman because God has dealt with you infinitely more kindly than what you deserve. 
In fact, reflecting on this, Paul in Philippians 2 says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Because you've experienced the beauty and the kindness of God's mercy, that's why. So again, I'm arguing that the gospel changes how you talk. Not words that are, are like grieve the spirit, words instead are kind. Here's the third one, words that are tender-hearted. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. The word tender-hearted comes from two words, one meaning good and the other meaning internal organs. These two words are put together such that it means good and like internal organs. Um, in in the old days, like in the 1600s, people thought that your feelings of affections came from organs like your spleen or your intestines, which is why if you grew up in the King James, every once in a while you'll see the word bowels. Like, for instance. Uh, Philippians 2 1 says, If there are any bowels and mercies. And you're like, What? Why is bowels? Well, because in, in the King James, the idea was that, man, when you really love somebody, you love them like really deep inside of your, 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 your gut. So, gratefully, we don't use it anymore, right? Man, I'm feeling you, baby, right? You know, I'm feeling you. I'm feeling, <laughs> feeling you right here. I'm loving you with my large intestine. I mean, that's just. We, we, just, we just don't do that. Thankfully, we use the word heart now to describe that. But, but what, what they're trying to drive at is that, that, that when you love someone, and you love them deeply, it comes from somewhere like deep, deep inside you. You don't know, it's not the heart, it's not your brain, it's not your spleen, it's not your liver, and it's not your bowels either. It's somewhere deep inside, there's this, this love, and the idea is this affection and this concern for other people. The idea is that a follower of Jesus has a deep internal affection for others. It means that you are a person who is deeply sympathetic, understanding, and compassionate. Why? Because you've experienced so much of God's grace, so much of His love and His mercy. This is a person who really cares, who really listens, a person who really wants to help. This is somebody who really, really understands. I don't know about you, but in my life, when I've been in a really tough spot, you know what I need more than anything else? I need someone who just understands. Someone who can just sympathize and listen. In fact, growing up, I had a great senior pastor who became a mentor, kind of a Paul figure in my life. And, you know, whenever I was in trouble, whenever I was just really discouraged, whenever I was like at the down of the down down spot in pastoral ministry, I'd pick up like the bat phone and call him. You know, he's the guy. Pastor Davis, I need lunch today. Can we meet? And, you know, just sitting across the table, I just tell him what's going on. Just the ability of somebody who's like, yeah, I know exactly what that's like. I know. Yep, been there. In fact, I got something worse than that. Let me tell you my story. I'm like, whoa, that's bad, you know. So someone who understands and sympathizes just makes all the difference in the world. And so tenderheartedness means that you really care. Oh, that you'd be known like that. And then here's the fourth characteristic. These are words that are grace-giving. The text says, the ESV translates it, um, forgiving one another. Now, there's a couple different words that are used for forgiveness and forgiving in the Bible. And sometimes it means to wipe away. That's not what this one means. This one means the effect of forgiveness. This means, this is the Greek word charizomai. It means to treat graciously. 
So it's not speaking specifically about wiping debts away, but rather it's talking about the effect of forgiveness, that you're, you're treating somebody with more kindness than what they deserve. And friends, this is what the Bible says, that we are to be people who consistently treat people with a kindness that they don't deserve. Think of your life like a page, and that in your tolerance of people and the way that they are, that there are wide margins of grace in your life. There's wide margins before they reach the end. Or think of it like a thermometer. There's a long ways before you reach your max out point. And, and let's be honest, some of us, our max out point is, is, is way too short. Our margins are way too thin. And when Paul says in terms of your words, there needs to be a lot of margin, a lot of grace that we could give, that our words give life. So is this what your life looks like? Are are you marked by the kind of attitude that reflects the beauty and the experience of God's grace? Do you talk with people with the same level of kindness that you have been treated? Do you seek to bring life and hope to people to whom you talk? So in the last session of Live 11, I'll, I'll talk about this notion of affirmation, how you practice this recognizing of God's grace in the life of someone. But I want you to even maybe do that today. Inside your bulletin is a little card, looks like this. You might wonder, why is that in there? Here's why. Because some of you, it's been a long time since you've written a thank you for being you note to somebody. And I want you to do that. I want you to take this home, write it, maybe your spouse, your kid, someone at work, maybe someone in this church, maybe the nursery workers who watch your kids so you could be here without a, a, a child that nagging at you or pulling at you. And you just want to write them thanks for what you do to be able to say, you know what, I want to give life into your soul. Most of us don't do enough of this, do we? We just, we take things for granted. We, we assume that, um, we deserve to be served. And what Paul is saying, and what God is saying in his word, is that the overall orientation of our life needs to be this consistent desire to encourage people because we have been infected by the beauty of God's grace. Now, strangely, it may be that you're here today and you have really no motivation to encourage people, or your motivation is because when you encourage people, they encourage you back. And I would tell you, it may be that God could even use a message like this today just to awaken you to the fact that you're missing everything that God intends for you and how you're supposed to live on earth and that your real issue is not how you talk. The real issue is who you are. And that God, through His Son, can change you fundamentally from the inside out. And when He changes you from the inside out, He changes how you talk. And that's the difference. And for that matter, that also makes a big difference in terms of where you spend eternity. So this consistently encouraged thing is supposed to be the the tone and the heart of those who follow Jesus. Now, let's talk about the second one. The second one I'm going to call intensively or this notion of admonishment. This is these are the moments when there is um crisis, there's failure, there's uncertainty. I'm talking about moments when someone is in trouble and they need help. And the question is, do you run to the problem or do you run away from it? One of the funniest Sundays we ever had here was when someone pulled a fire alarm right in the middle, or fire alarm went off right in the middle of a sermon. And we'd never had that happen before. I'd never had that happen before. We didn't know what to do. But what was really interesting is that when the fire alarm alarm went off, I stayed here kind of going, I don't know what to do. But there were three guys in our church who knew exactly what to do. And they instantaneously sprang up and they ran out. And they weren't running to get out of the building. They were running to the alarm. They were running to whatever was wrong. And that's what... What first responders do while we're running away, ah, they're running towards it, right? Right? And that's what they're supposed to do. And here's my question. Are you a first responder when it comes to people's problems? 
When someone's got an issue, do you run away or do you run toward it? Because there's an incredible opportunity for you to run towards it for God's glory. What does this look like? Well, the Greek word admonishment means to lay on the heart, to set right, to give understanding. It carries this idea of warning or correcting someone. And it is a vital part of pastoral ministry. In other words, what my role is and how our pastors serve you and our elders serve you is to help you know what the word of God says and to warn you what the word of God says. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. In other words, if you grew up in a church where somebody regularly taught you and warned you about what the Bible said, you ought to be incredibly thankful. Because, friends, we need regular warning. Because every Sunday, we're trying to help our hearts understand what the real truth of God's Word is, when all week long, we've heard various lies from our culture and from society, not to mention our own hearts. So the reality is, every Sunday, there is this opportunity to warn and to remind us what the Bible says. In fact, one of my aims, and one of the aims of our staff, is to help, whether it's parking and how you come in, and everything about our space to make it as comfortable, as comfortable, as comfortable as possible so when you hear the Word of God, it is as uncomfortable as possible. That's the aim. So that you understand, because we need to be challenged by what the Word of God is. And I believe, in my heart, that heaven and hell is on the line every single Sunday. That there are people who are going to make bad decisions tonight that could alter the effect of the rest of their lives. And so this intensity that I feel is because the Bible is true, hell is significant, heaven is a real place, and God's word has power. And therefore, the, the vital part of pastoral ministry is warning and encouraging. And if, if, if that's not what you like, then this probably isn't the place for you. Because this Bible, to me, is a very serious word, and we have serious issues and therefore, we need the intersection of God's word and this warning. So it's a vital part of pastoral ministry, but that's not it. It also is a vital part of every believer's ministry. Listen to what this text says, First Thessalonians 5. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Romans fifteen fourteen says, I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. The power lies in the word, not in the person. And therefore, what God calls all of us to do is to take God's word and to admonish, to apply it into the lives of other people. It's as simple as realizing something is wrong in this person's life and the Bible has the answers that this person needs. Therefore, what I want to call you today to think about and to be a part of is to realize that you have an opportunity when crisis comes or a problem comes your way through another person, you have an opportunity to speak the Word of God into that situation. So therefore, you have to know the Word, you have to memorize the Word, you have to study this Word so that you can not just be intelligent about the Bible, but rather so that when crisis comes, you can be there to be God's spokesperson to help that person change. And I want to tell you, there is nothing more glorious than when that happens. To see a person's life radically transformed by the authority of the Word, that is beautiful beyond measure. It's a miracle. And when you see it, mm, you want it over and over and over. The third and final thing is that this notion of admonition is essential for the formation of Christ-likeness. Colossians 1 says this, Him we proclaim, warning every man 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul connects God's glory, the centrality of Christ, and the goal of maturity. And all of this is possible because of the warning and the teaching that's critical to the formation of Christ. So listen to me. This is hard work. It requires tears. It requires great prayers and great toil. But it is worth it. It is eternally worth it. This means that someone is in crisis and you run to it instead of running away from it. And you're able to see not only the issue, but how the Bible relates to their problem. And you're able to speak into it with the authority of God's word. And there is nothing more glorious than when the light bulb comes on and the person sees how they can really change their life under the authority of the scriptures. This is what I've given my life to. I have seen the miracle that takes place when the Bible is applied to people's life in crisis and when they, they can radically change their life. And when you know that God has given you a word and you have spoken it and it lands on the heart and the person has radically transformed and changed, your heart is worshiping, their heart is worshiping, God has come down. It's a miracle and you get to be a part of it. And the thing that I want to encourage you, whether it's mom and a dad with your kids, whether it's you with a coworker or a friend or someone else that's in the orbit that God has put them um, into your life, there is, there is nothing more glorious than a word spoken in exactly the right moment that God uses to transform someone's life. There's nothing. There's nothing like words that give life. So for some of you, the, the call this morning is instead of not using your tongues for bad things, I want to encourage you to use your tongue to give counsel. In fact, after the service, there'll be some folks up here who are going to be able to pray with you and counsel with you. Some of you need to make it your goal that in five years you're going to be up here. Some of you need to be a part of our long-term soul care, counseling people ministry. You need to be a part of speaking truth into people's lives. And you need to get serious about knowing God's word and, and realizing that admonishing people, is, is, is there's a burning within you to make that happen. That's a gift from God, a calling is put on your heart and life. And I would tell you there's nothing more glorious, more wonderful, or all-consuming than this beautiful miracle of what happens when people's lives are impacted by God's word and they change and turn around and God gets the glory and you get to be a part of it. And that, my friends, is how you build people up for God's glory and for the advancement of his church. So dream with me of what it would look like for God to use your mouth to build others up and in doing so build up his church for his glory. Father, I pray that you would, from our congregation, launch an army of people who would love and long for your glory to be expressed in how we communicate our words, not just in kindness and tenderheartedness, but also in terms of admonishing, encouraging, and in some cases, giving specific instructions. So raise up, I pray, an army of people who not only love you and love your word, but want to see life change in the lives of others for the good of the church and for your glory. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you. Thanks for coming today.